of humanity. He's at a loss for what to do until a lion calls, called Aslan, who's described as the son of the emperor over the sea, leads him to a well of water with healing powers and tells him to bathe. But there's a condition. He can't go in as a dragon. He has to remove his dragon skin first. So Eustace tried and tried to scrape off the scales, but there were too many layers. So finally, Aslan says, you will have to let me undress you. Here's what he says as Aslan applies his claws to the dragon suit. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff come off. And then Aslan threw him into the water where he turned into a boy again. Just imagine how we felt after that. So as we dive into Romans today, Eustace's story is a helpful illustration of what transformation looks like as Paul talks about a Christian's new life. So let's read Romans together, Romans 6, 1 through 14, first half roughly. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, and do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." So for some context, in this letter that Paul's writing to the Romans, Paul is speaking to a church made up of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. And his main focus is to explain to them how God saves his people from sin and judgment by extending mercy through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And he's also preparing for a missionary journey to Spain at this time. So many scholars view Romans as Paul's attempt to unify the church in preparation for that so that it can spread. Rome was also a church where Jewish and Gentile Christians approached their shared faith in Jesus from different backgrounds and were often in dispute with each other over the law, the Torah. So the result is this book where Paul clarifies what the gospel really is, who we are if we're in Jesus, and what that means about the way we should live. What difference does it make in other words? So in our passage today, 
the first part of chapter six, Paul is debating the role and the effect of grace in the lives of Christians. And there are three main points that I wanted to highlight from my study of this passage. One is that grace gives us a new hope. Two is that grace gives us a new identity. And three is that grace gives us, it empowers us to live a new life. So new hope, new identity, and a new life. So the point one, grace gives us a new hope. Paul starts off with a rhetorical question. What then, shall we say, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And to understand where this comes from, we just have to look back one verse to Romans 5.20, where he says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's saying not just a little bit of grace, but a life-changing amount that even leads to eternal life. So here's the big question that Romans 6 was written to answer. Paul had already been accused in Romans 3.8 of saying, why not do evil so that good may come? Essentially, his opponents are saying, you must be wrong, Paul. We've been telling people that they need to fight sin with their personal effort and rule-keeping, the law. And if you keep talking about grace doing so much more abounding while they sin, then won't they just give up on obedience and keep sinning? They may be thinking, surely grace could run out so that we can tell people they still have to keep the law. Otherwise, won't it become an excuse to sin? And surely many Christians in the history have erroneously made that very claim. So Paul uses this concern to correct a serious misconception about following Jesus and at the same time helps us see the true power of the gospel in our everyday lives. The misconception is that without the do-it-yourself motivation of the law, Christians just stay slaves to sin. Sin remains their master and maybe they even want it that way. But grace, Paul says, gives us a new hope of breaking sin's power a better way out of sin than the law. How? By displaying a power to live for God that we didn't have before. So let's read how he answers that question in verse 1. By no means. So he's basically saying it's actually the opposite of that, of what you thought. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he's saying there's something new that we didn't have before, and guess what? It actually results in more obedience, not less. He's saying there's something new. And in verse 17, he says, we became obedient from the heart. That's because Christ's death, not personal effort, was what broke sin's power over us. Grace has more power than the law because it actually makes us die to sin through Jesus. So Paul is reframing their understanding of obedience. Instead of earning God's favor through our self-help and effort, he points out that the law actually increased our debt, and the only way to overcome this mountain of charges against us is to receive grace. And he does that without saying the law is bad. In the next chapter, he says the law is holy and righteous and just. And in Galatians 3, he says the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. 
And Paul defends the goodness of the law in itself, just as the Old Testament always described it. If you turn back to Psalm 119.33 for a moment, and a couple of the following verses. He says, this is the psalmist, David, writing, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts in your your righteousness. Give me life. This is like, this is not like what the Pharisees were doing with their uh, emphasis on outward conformity. The psalmist is extolling God's beauty that he sees in God's attributes and his statutes. And he wants to walk in God's life-saving way. So it's a great example of the law tutoring David into uh, ultimately towards Jesus and Jesus' own obedience of the law. But Paul's argument is that for us to achieve true obedience, first we need to be freed from sin's power. And later he calls this enslavement. And the law doesn't do that for us. So trying to please God through the law is maybe a bit like putting on a helmet after you've already fallen off your bike and cracked your head on the pavement. It, it's, the helmet was fine, and now the wound is covered up so you can't see it, but it's too late. It, the damage is done, and what you really need is a doctor. That's why Paul insists that grace is powerful and should be embraced and not feared. And Paul uses the death and resurrection of Jesus, his coming back from the dead, and the sign of baptism that we go through to show that we believe that, to show us what our new life is like. We don't die in the same way Jesus did, and we certainly didn't live a perfect life like he did either. But our new life is so closely tied to Jesus' death that it's as if we, our sinful self, has died right along with him, and now we're a new person born again. So friends, a question I was asking myself, how are you and I still living like we're enslaved to sin? Do you tell yourself you'll do what you know is right, but maybe next time, not today? Do you excuse your sin as long as it doesn't seem to hurt anyone else? Or do you take comfort in the thought that everyone else is doing it, maybe even other Christians you know, so it doesn't seem that bad? Do you mistake your good intentions to obey God for obedient behaviors? That's a big one for me. My intent to do something means I did it (laughs) a lot of times. Or on the opposite end of the spectrum, do you tell yourself it's hopeless, you're too weak, you're struggling, so you may as well just give in to temptation, at least this time? Does the enemy use your guilt to beat you down and keep you stuck in a depressing rut of sin? The good news is that we don't have to live that way. That's Paul's argument here, because grace has power and it leads us out of sin. So our new hope is the abundance of grace we have in Jesus, so we don't depend on ourselves for salvation. But what effect does that new hope have on who we are and who we become? Point two, we have a new identity. Through grace, God makes us into a new person by transforming us with Jesus 
and giving us a new identity. So key to any transformation is to experience some sort of trial or death or life-changing event. And we have some examples of this in nature, like caterpillars, when they turn into butterflies. They shed their outside bodies. And Jesus makes the analogy of a seed that falls to the ground and dies. Science says that it's not an actual death, but it is a death of the seed. The death of the seed cannot stay a seed anymore. In order to have the luscious life of a plant, it does have to fall to the ground and leave its seedness behind. And rebirth is a recurring theme in movies and literature where a hero has to go through some kind of ordeal or trial or defeat some kind of monster, and then they come out on the other side a changed person. So what is this life-changing event for a Christian? Let's read verses 5 through 7 again. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died is free from sin. So the life-changing event for a Christian is to be strapped to Jesus, his death and resurrection, and receive a new identity as he lives again. So like verse 8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we shall also live with him. Theologian Douglas Moo thinks the phrasing in verse 5 means that we are in a state of conformity to that death and that we have an ongoing conformity with Jesus' death after that, that we have a continuing effect, that it has a continuing effect on our existence. It's a permanent new state. So the person who receives grace leaves the old self and lives in a new state of constant left-it-behindness. So remember Eustace, this is his dragon skin torn off and thrown on the ground so he can get washed in the healing water. And after his transformation, he's going to leave it there in the cave. He's not going to ball it up under his shirt and bring it back with him. So the key here is a new self that's like Christ. We died in a death like his because we weren't like him before and raised in a resurrection like his so that we can be like him now. In studying Romans 6, at first I found myself really asking and struggling through this question, what's the real difference when someone is saved? If it's just about like changing your mind, you know, I confess my belief in Jesus, I start going to church, and then what? I, I don't swear as much, I make better decisions, I have a more biblical outlook on life and culture. But what makes me a different person? I think that's what Paul is saying here. We are a new person. Well, he says that our old self was crucified, that we were buried in baptism, past tense, so that's done. And he states that the, the purpose, too, and notice all the prepositions in that verse, in order that, so that, for, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So, Sin has been reduced to inaction. This is why we can't say sin's not a big deal. 
like Paul's questioners. And why Paul corrects the Romans for their worry that grace will just encourage sin. Back in verse 3, Paul says we were baptized into Christ's death. He talks a lot about being baptized, so I found it helpful to go back to Paul's own baptism in Acts 22. So turn back with me to Acts 22.12. chapter just before Romans. And before this, Paul was like the Pharisees. He ultimately, he was intimately familiar with uh, law-keeping and er trying to earn God's grace and peace through his law-keeping. And then in Acts 22, this stunning conversion happens where he was blinded by Jesus and led by the hand into Damascus. So that's where we pick up in verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our father appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. I just almost get a chuckle out of why do you wait? Paul has just had this amazing conversion. And the very first thing that happens after that is baptism. And Ananias is looking at him like, almost like, why haven't you done it already? When Paul talks about baptism in Romans 6, he's got Ananias's voice ringing in his ears saying, wash away your sins, Paul. And the water, of course, doesn't do anything in itself, but baptism symbolizes both washing and dying. And all throughout the Old Testament, God's people have had to go through waters uh, in a symbolic way. They crossed the Red Sea to escape Egypt they crossed the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land, and Naaman bathed in the Jordan River to receive healing. And Paul echoes this in Titus 3, where he says, We are saved not by works, but by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So baptism signifies a decisive spiritual break from the old in favor of the new, a clean start. One story ends, another begins. It's a black and white scenario. We used to be in Adam where sin abounded. Now we're in Christ where grace abounds. We were under the law and condemnation and now we're under grace. Now we know from elsewhere in Romans that every Christian is a struggling Christian and the new man struggles against the old. But Paul isn't saying we never sin after we're saved. It doesn't say sin dies to us, but it says that we die to sin. Paul is saying we're freed from sin's power and not necessarily its presence. That's for our encouragement. We can be tempted to go back to sin just like old times, for sure. But imagine if you got a job, a new job, and then after a couple of months on that new job, you decided that you would go back to HR at your old company and demand a paycheck for the two months that you hadn't been there. It would make no sense to anyone you aren't working there anymore. You don't have a desk. Your ID badge doesn't work. You have no obligation to them and they have no authority to tell you what to do like they used to. 
So naturally, you get no benefits by going back to them. Another example is leaving one country to become a citizen of another. It's a change of domain, and for Paul, we are either in the realm of sin or the realm of grace. And it doesn't make any sense to him that someone would suggest we're in both at the same time, that we, we use one as an excuse to be back in the other. You've been transformed, and you've left that dragon skin behind. Paul makes this argument again in verse 20 by asking, what fruit at that time, from the, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. In other words, sin wasn't delivering on its promise even back then when you were under its spell. It wasn't doing you any good. But now that you know how pointless it was and you've been given a passport through death itself, to leave it behind, you have all the more reason not to return to it. And now what? We found the gospel, we identified with Christ, so what's next? Point three, grace gives us a new life to live for God. See verses 10 through 14. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must Consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, and do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. This is again the answer to Verse 1, and he keeps doing through this chapter. Here again is the idea of leaving one dominion or ruling power. You're free now, and obeying sin would be like running back to that domain or, or running back to a dead body and trying to give it CPR, to give it life again. You don't want to do that. You left it behind. It won't work. Once again, Paul is not preaching perfection here. I think that's a danger for us to fall into sometimes, depending on what kind of cultural Christian background we're from. He's instructing us on the path to follow after we're saved. So in verse 22, he says, the fruit you get from living for God leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. So according to Paul, our new identity comes with a new power that leads to a new way of life. Notice that Paul is no longer making a statement of fact, which he kind of has been up till now, but this is a command. He pleads, you must consider yourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. A member of my community group once wisely noted that we don't just present ourselves to God once. We have to keep presenting ourselves to God on a daily basis. Yes, we have a new power in Christ, but now we have to use it. We still have to wake up every morning, put on the full armor of God, and fight the good fight. Colossians 3.10 says, We have put on a new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is an assurance of salvation for us. If you're discouraged by sin's lingering presence in your life, and who doesn't have those moments? I, I feel like the enemy's, one of the enemy's biggest weapons is discouragement, weakens us. If you're discouraged by sin's lingering presence in your life, 
and you gave into it this week, take comfort that your renewal continues. Paul is not beating up the struggling Christian. We may beat ourselves up, but he's reminding the struggler, you and me, that we're already on the path to sanctification. So it might be helpful to think what things you're doing to consider yourself free with a new life. Paul is urgent about this because he knows we still drag around the sinful tendencies of the old self. When we fall back into sinful habits, does that mean we're not saved? Should we beat ourselves up over it? Should we hide our failures from our friends and church members so they don't see it? Or maybe just indulge ourselves like Paul's questioners think we will? None of that, not, not at all. This is a reminder and an encouragement that we have grace for today. And so as we wrap up, think how Paul's opponents are looking back and he's looking forward. He's saying, look, you've been transformed at the cross, you've been initiated by baptism, and now whatever your failings are, back then or yesterday, keep moving forward. We'll see what David saw in Psalm 119, where he is extolling God's glory. Maybe just a little at first, I think sometimes we mistake having just a little bit of that feeling or a little bit of that uh, recognition of God's nature for not, for not having any. But we can start out as a little Christian. We can start out um, coming out of a depth and, and then see more and more over time. We'll be attracted to God's glory more and more as we're, because we're born anew. So the message is to keep going in your new identity and don't go back. Well, there's just a couple of points of application that I wanted to give first for. Uh, first, if you're not a Christian here and you're listening to this, or if you're not sure if you're a Christian and you struggle with knowing who you really are deep down, maybe you'll even or have experienced some kind of identity crisis, think about how God might be speaking to you and who you are through this passage. Grace is for all who repent and believe. And if you have doubts about whether this is true, and I think that's okay. All of us have had doubts. I think um, most people have. But since Jesus rose from the dead, there's hardly anyone else even approaching that kind of credibility. Who else could you listen to that has more credibility than that? There's no reason not to hear what Jesus is saying to you today. And second application, if you are a Christian, nurture your love for God. You may not have had a dramatic conversion like Paul, but a dragon was still defeated for you at the cross. And sometimes we see that dragon more and more over time, not right away. The more we see God's character, sometimes the more that comes out. So we can each become just as captivated by Jesus as Paul was if we spend time getting to know him in his word through reading scripture and praying and reflecting on the new life he gave us. Third, Application, receive grace afresh instead of pretending like you can contribute to it. Grace isn't cheap. I like to think grace is expensive. Just look at the cross. It's free to us, but it was costly to God. So treat it like a valuable gift and a daily provision. And then last, let's live like we're under grace. How do we do this, especially when we sin it might feel like we're doing it great when we're not tempted. We don't always feel very transformed, and the rubber is going to meet the road in our moments of temptation when we want 
to tap that link or yell something damaging to a family member or slight someone who we think deserves it. In those moments, what we really want to do is call on God for help and, if possible, share our struggle with another Christian who can help us so we don't walk it alone. Remembering and talking about God's presence will help us align our lives to the identity that we already have. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your word.